From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There's a shortage of people able to treat convicted sex offenders in Colorado. If we're not able to treat these clients with evidence-based interventions, then we're not reducing the chance of future victimization. We'll talk about the reasons for the shortage, the impact, and efforts to find solutions. Then, photographs taken by veterans through a program that creates community and support. Anyone can pick up a camera and take a picture, but not everyone can pick up a camera, take a picture, and tell a story on top of that. And later, my family and I head to Cripple Creek to explore the new Ice Castles attraction. Oh, I see. It's, like, very, like, blue and, like, very, it's very clear. All these, like, icicles on the top um, sort of look like spikes, you know? I'm waiting for the abominable snowman to come running out. I'm Joanne Woolley, Director of Legacy Giving. A future gift to Colorado Public Radio through your will or estate is a meaningful way to recognize and sustain an organization that enriches your life and your community. If leaving a gift to CPR is already in your future plans, please let us know. As a fellow Legacy Circle member, it would be my privilege to thank you and hear your story. Learn about Legacy Giving on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. There's a shortage of people able to treat convicted sex offenders in Colorado. It's concerning because treatment is supposed to lessen the chances that sex offenders commit the crime again. You're joined now by two student journalists from CU Boulder who have been reporting on the situation, Kiara Damari and Henry Larson. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Hi, Chandra. Thanks for having us. So describe for us how severe is the shortage? It's bad. That's consistent whether we're talking about providers who work inside prisons or treat people who are formerly locked up. I'll give you one statistic as an example. Behavioral health positions inside the Department of Corrections were just 45% staffed as of August. Mm. Has it been trending down? Yeah, it was up at about 75% about 10 years ago. I want to dig into the reasons why and what can be done to reverse the trend. But first, let's talk more about how this treatment works and why it matters. Therapists hold group sessions with sex offenders in prison. They focus on taking accountability for their crimes, victim empathy, and reducing urges to commit future sex offenses. Henry and I weren't allowed to talk to any providers who currently work for the Department of Corrections. Uh, the DOC wouldn't grant those interview requests. But we heard concerns from other several types of professionals who work in this area, like Ashley Charbonneau. She's a treatment provider based in Denver, and she worked in the juvenile corrections system for five years. I think if we're not able to treat these clients with evidence-based interventions, then we're not reducing the chance of future victimization. Hmm. And I can imagine many of these people will leave prison at some point and they'll need treatment to be successfully integrated back into society. Yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, many people with sex offense convictions will get released. Uh, they'll come back into the communities. A victim's representative we spoke to said without treatment, offenders are less likely to have the tools to take accountability for their actions. 
Casey Ballinger works for a victim's advocacy group called The Blue Bench in Denver. Um, She's also on the board to manage sex offender treatment in Colorado. For survivors to have somebody then be re-entered into the community with maybe more maladaptive behaviors than they entered into the Department of Corrections with, that doesn't lend to the safety that they're hoping for or the, the reassurance that this individual is not going to commit any new sex offenses. And Colorado has some of the highest recidivism rates in the country overall. Sex offenders reoffend at a little lower rate than people who commit other crimes, but it's still pretty high. Do we know for certain that this shortage of treatment providers affects recidivism? No, we can't say that for sure. But experts we talk to in this field fear that it will. That's the same with the quality of the treatment that's available. The DOC told us the quality won't suffer because of the shortage, but several experts we talked to describe a situation where the providers who are working in prisons in particular are overwhelmed by their caseloads and are having to triage. Seth Westcott works with sex offenders in Kansas prisons, and he's now in private practice. A lot of times working in a correctional setting, practitioners have to triage what clients they see and how often they see them. And there's typically a focus on putting the most resources toward the highest risk individuals. And hopefully there are enough staff that will allow for the the full treatment of every client that's there. We are putting band-aids on situations rather than going in depth with the clinical practices. There's an entity in Colorado that manages sex offender treatment. They're called the Sex Offender Management Board. And in a board meeting last September, they acknowledged the shortage and the impact on the providers who are available. They actually said providers are pulling double or triple duty. Wow. What does the lack of providers mean for those in prison on sex offender charges now? The shortage of treatment providers can also hurt people who have been convicted from successfully rejoining society. So they may spend more time in prison without being eligible for parole because they haven't finished their required treatment. Because people convicted of most serious sex offenses in Colorado have to complete behavioral health treatment to be paroled and as a condition of that parole once they've been released. And that continues for their whole lives in most cases. So for the past 25 years, most adults who have committed offenses like rape, sexual assault, or most crimes involving children have had to be supervised for the rest of their lives, even if they get released from prison. Kiara, why is there such a shortage of behavioral health specialists equipped to work with sex offenders? It's a mixture of things. The people we talked with who work in this field say it's generally not a super appealing assignment to work inside the prisons. That's partly because of location. I do think that could be a barrier to getting people to work in some of the prisons is, you know, being so far outside of a major metropolitan area. Again, Ashley Charbonneau is a treatment provider based in Denver. These facilities are in places like Sterling, Canyon City, Buena Vista, And they're all pretty remote, small cities. Another thing, she said working in a correctional facility comes with its own risks and fears, uh, which can impact professional staff. There's inherent fear and lack of safety. You know, I've seen colleagues get assaulted, and that's traumatic as well. Burnout and pandemic-era mental health challenges have also taken their toll on the behavioral health profession, just like so many others. A provider in Lamar County, Holly Carpenter, described the impact over the past few years. 
we've lost people because of the bandwidth of people. People went through their own stuff. People forget that mental health providers, therapists are people with our own lives. Is anything being done to try to turn the shortage around and recruit more people equipped to work with sex offenders? Yeah, there are a few things. The DOC has first been trying to retain the people that they do have. They've given prison-based employees salary increases in recent years. The department has also bought advertising on TV and online. And they've made an effort to promote these jobs at recruiting events. But those efforts have yet to yield significant results. Providers tell us they believe employers need to provide better work-life balance and more remote work flexibility. And ultimately, the people who've stuck with it tell us it's about the public service mission, like Seth Westcott. Being in this field for 20 years, I hope that I'm only halfway done because I love this work. I love the clinical aspects of working with the people behind the behavior. This is a field that is not stagnant. This is a field that is always growing, always trying to get better, always trying to evolve into something that brings us closer to a world without sexual violence. Mm. I mentioned at the beginning of this interview that you are a student journalist about to graduate from CU. You've been working on this story for more than four months now. What inspired you to dig into this issue? Uh, So I have a family friend who sponsors sex offenders. So whenever they're released, she helps them find housing, jobs, make sure they hit all their important meeting dates. And at a family barbecue over the summer, we were talking about what she does and this whole system and it seems very interesting and, you know, like there was something there. And Kiara and I spoke about it when we started class last semester and we decided to partner up and take a look at the systems that manage sex offenders in the state. Wow, interesting. This is going to be an issue to watch. Henry, Kiara, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. You're welcome. Thanks Thank for having so us. Much. Kiara Damari and Henry Larson are student reporters with the CU News Corps an investigative and explanatory news project offered through the University of Colorado Boulder's journalism department. They spoke with us about a chronic shortage of professionals able to treat convicted sex offenders here in Colorado. The shortage is concerning because treatment is supposed to lessen the chances that sex offenders commit the crimes again. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. So much news, it's impossible to take it all in. But The Lookout brings focus to what's essential to every informed Coloradan. Every weekday, it's a free digest of news from all over the state. Sign up at CPR.org lookout. Through Their Lens is a new exhibit featuring photographs taken by veterans. It's a project through CPAC, the Colorado Photographic Arts Center, focused on creating community with those who've served. CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane sat down with Samantha Johnston, the executive director of CPAC and curator of the exhibit. She also spoke with veterans Jason Alfaro and Robert Grimmer, who recently graduated from the workshop. Samantha, how did this project begin? We were looking at programming and wanting to build out a more community-based program. We did a lot of research, really felt that veterans uh, were a community that could use some more programming. So we consulted with other veteran groups and veterans who were running our programming to really understand some of the needs and make sure that we were kind of doing right by the community. Uh, One of those comments was to make sure that we created a program that kind of stayed the course and didn't, wasn't a one and done project. I really took to heart talking to other veterans and they are happy to hear that the program has continued 
that it didn't just stop because we couldn't figure out the funding. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's as a non-veteran, I see it looking at the outside of veteran programming. I think that that's an unfortunate part that happens oftentimes. And I feel like Jason and Robert could speak more to that, but that sometimes programs are created and then they aren't, there's not a, a place for them to follow through. And so, you know, not just having the program, but having the alumni piece is important so that the veterans know that there's a place to come back to. There's a larger photo community they're now a part of, but then there's also the veteran photo community as part of this workshop that they're a part of. Um, And all of that is really important and that that continues to kind of looking at bringing in speakers or this alumni show and and having all of that kind of be part of it. It's been really, really powerful. And I have not served, but I have family who has served. So supporting veterans is important to me personally as well. Jason, what made you want to do this? What made you want to even join this program? I jumped into it not really knowing what it was about and I'm glad I was able to do it. You know, it's definitely like opened some opportunities for myself and met some new people and just that community. What Samantha was speaking about is pretty nice when you, especially when you have to bring other veterans alongside with you. So was it, you saw a flyer on campus or someone on campus told you about it? How did that? Uh, the, the director of the veterans student service mm-hmm. up in Metro state university, they usually send out either uh, daily emails or monthly email or weekly emails and kind of just giving other veterans opportunities for different, you know, different stuff. And I came across the one time I look at the email without deleting it, I check it out <laughs> and I, <laughs> I was able to see that, you know, this was uh, something that I already kind of did with photography. So I, like I said, I jumped right into that one for sure. So you already had a little bit of experience with photography. What was it about the email that piqued your interest enough to even inquire? Probably an exhibition gallery. Yeah. Never had my stuff uh, posted out there or, or printed in, in large scale. Bob, what was it that brought you into this program? Actually, uh, it was last March, I think. It was Denver has like a photo exhibition. And I went down there just to kind of check out some of the different uh, exhibitions and, and displays and things and, and wandered in uh, to the Colorado Photographic Art Center at their old location and was just looking around and there was a stack of flyers there. And I said, well, this is perfect. For me, and it was just before the deadline, so I brought it home with me and uh, ended up filling it out and got accepted. The timing was just, you know, it was just perfect. And you know, like Jason said, I was just not looking for an opportunity. You know, ever, there's a lot of amateur photographers out there that are passionate about taking pictures, but it's really hard to just like break into it somehow. And so this was just a great opportunity to be showcased without, you know, having to really go through years and years of of blood, sweat, and tears, you know, they help you out with the project and it gets put on display and it's a great next step, you know, for an amateur photographer. So do I understand that you also had dabbled in photography before this program? Oh yeah, I've been passionate about photography since before I was, actually I was in the army when I bought my first Canon Rebel film camera. A and, Canon um, Rebel, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, I think Andre Agassi at the time was like the spokesperson <laughs> and it was like, and uh, yeah, picked one up and uh, dragged my my then girlfriend, now wife of 25 years around Central Texas and, you know, just taking pictures of landscapes and cemeteries and animals and things like that. You know, so I just really enjoy the, you know, the operation, the technical piece of it. So, yeah. Jason, what was your first camera? Well, I, f- I believe my first camera, my first, like, I guess, digital camera was um, just a Sony Cyber... I can't remember the name of it, but it was some, yeah, something like that. I, I wanted one for, for my birthday and when I was younger and uh, I, I used it, you know, a couple of times, but as everything, as I did as a kid, I kind of let go of it and 
uh, it wasn't until right before I got out the Navy that uh, I had a friend of mine who was who had bought a camera for a deployment that we did, uh, who was wasn't able to use it just due to the fact that our deployment wasn't really filled with too much port visits or anything like that. So he didn't really get to use that camera. And so I asked him if I can buy it for him before I get out, find something to do as a hobby. And sure enough, uh, let me buy it. And that's what I still use to this day. And that's a Sony a7R II. Tell me about your piece. What went into creating the piece that's going to be on display in this exhibition? Well, I, originally my piece was wanting to be about, because um, I'm a student in brewery science at Metro State. So I thought that kind of diving into that and going to other breweries and just kind of focusing on the piece of like how beer is made. And with Colorado being, you know, a state that's all about beer, I thought that would be a perfect match. I got some feedback on it and was kind of told that, you know, I heard, yes, let's do it or do it. And then I also heard like, you know, that's such a common topic to speak about. So I was kind of, you know, still not really finding what I wanted to do about my project. And so I happened to be that classmate of mine in one of my beer classes. Uh, his name is Santos Ortiz. He just had some, I don't know, some interesting look behind him that I just kind of found intriguing. And I sat down with him one day and asked him if I can take photos for him and be part of my project. And he's like, oh, that works out perfectly. I get, you know, I go to the ranch every day. Uh, that's where I get like therapy because he was also a army veteran who has served 20 years as an SF guy, uh, Green Berets. And, and so he gets equine therapy with the horses that he works at the ranch. And yeah, it just kind of all started there, kind of improvising, seeing how it all went. And I think the project went well, actually. Um, he was always bringing his dog, his service animal, Boaz, who had a very close connection to one of the horses that he worked with, who was named Summer. And all those horses at that ranch are rescue horses. And it just, it all just kind of fell into place. There wasn't really like much planning, honestly, besides just going to the ranch with him and having him look good, I guess, for them <laughs> behind the camera or in front of the camera. So, uh, but no, it, it turned out great, I think. Robert, how about yours? How did yours begin? Well, what was behind it? My wife always, always complains about me just trying to do too many things at once. And so around the time that I had submitted the uh, veterans workshop application, I was also in the process of volunteering or, you know, applying to work as a volunteer medic in Ukraine for a, a non-governmental organization. It's called Global Outreach Doctors, uh, so, and they're similar to Doctors Without Borders, basically. And so there have been in Ukraine for over a year providing medical support to the Ukrainian army. And um, right around the time I was accepted to the workshop, I was basically accepted into their program. And so at first I was like, how am I going to do this? Um, but then I said, well, I, you know, let me see if I can make both work and, and turn it into an opportunity to kind of document my time over there. And I, I thank Samantha and Frank and the other cadre uh, there because I, you know, kind of floated the idea and they said, well, we don't normally let people you know, go on an overseas trip and, you know, <laughs> and use it as, as their project. But this sounds like it's got, you know, some teeth to it. So I went out and was serving as a medic, helping out, but also had cameras in hand and, you know, took, took pictures as I could. But the frustrating thing was, you know, passing up the opportunity to take a really good photo. Um, you can't really pause patient care, you know, for like a great shot. So, um, so I had to kind of incorporate both of them. I mean, my primary task was being a medic, but, uh, but I had some opportunities to take some pictures and, um, and I thought that 
turned out pretty good, the ones I had. So, I wonder, what is it that you hope to get out of sharing the work that you've done in this exhibition with not just your cohort, but with the general public? Honestly, just I always see kind of an opportunity to always network with whoever it might be, even within this program itself, meeting other people who are able to, you know, bless an opportunity upon me or being upon them, but just kind of networking and meeting new people and being able to communicate within a community that we all kind of belong to is pretty nice. Yeah, I I completely agree with uh, Jason. And that was one of the reasons I joined in the first place. Um, I also think that there's an important you know, from a therapeutic standpoint, um, being able to just pick up a camera, you don't have to be an expert, you know, they teach you just enough to put together a good photo story and help you out along the way as far as post processing and editing. And I think, you know, a lot of veterans out there, especially older ones, (laughs) like myself, who, you know, are kind of maybe looking for meaning and purpose and, or just a good hobby, you know, that gets you out there to document things. And, um, you know, I would share the fact that this is a great program for future veterans yeah, or for current veterans that are looking, you know, for something to do, you know, to keep their mind occupied and, and maybe challenge themselves with the technical piece of it. But um, yeah, just to spread the word as, as a hobby, a form of therapy for, for people. And what do you think that your hope is for the casual visitor to the exhibition? Not necessarily someone who's connected to the organization or not necessarily a veteran, but just the average Coloradan who comes in to see the exhibition, what is it you hope they take away? I definitely want them to think that or kind of understand the whole meaning behind a person's photo, obviously, but not just any person, but a veteran side to it. Because I feel our side of thinking is completely different from like someone that hasn't served. But I definitely think that we have, as veterans, kind of put together like a, I guess, kind of like a strong suit towards what we believe in. And I think that we can definitely show that in our photos whether we did or didn't, I think for someone to kind of view it as that, it's definitely meaningful and can enlighten someone to, like, for instance, for my project uh, with equine therapy, I've never even knew that existed. I didn't know that what that was until, you know, I came across my friend. And I think that's definitely cool to see that someone else can also gain some knowledge off of that as well. How about you, Robert? I agree. I, I think it's important for just everyone to know that photography is not dead photojournalism isn't dead, you know, especially in this age of, of AI and, you know, computer generated images, things like that, you know, that um, it's a craft that people go out and, and work really hard at. And that I think that, you know, a good photo story in many ways tells more than a documentary film or something like that, just because a lot of the interpretation is in the viewer's head. But places like CPAC and other galleries, nonprofit organizations that are out there that are spreading the good word. I think it's important for the public to know that this is a, a, an art that's alive and well and, and is reaching out for people that might want to better their craft or take that next step towards being a, a professional. So. Samantha, what is it you hope that the visitors to this exhibition will take away from it? Yeah, I mean, I hope that when people come in to see the work that they really take time. And, you know, a big part of being a photographer, being an artist is making the work, but then also kind of talking about the work as well. And so the the statements that they all wrote is is an important component to the project. And so, you know, having someone come in and, and maybe not just look at the pictures, but to pick up the caption sheets and also take a look at what they've written and how they're talking about the experience and the project and what each veteran kind of 
their experience of making those projects their own because they are so different. And I think that's what's so great about the program is that it, you know, no one comes in and we're like, you need to make pictures of this, you know, like to Jason's point about the beer idea, you know, it's not that it's not a good, but like, sure, maybe try that. But what else is out there? How to push to maybe challenge each person to kind of maybe push them out of their comfort zone or do something that they haven't photographed before and to create this safe space for that to happen. So I always want people to know that they're welcome to come in and ask questions and ask questions of us as a staff and to really spend time with the work because there's a lot to take in. When you agreed to speak to me, what is it that you were hoping you'd have a chance to say that I didn't touch on? Kind of has to do with what Samantha was talking about, kind of in the sense of how she's we're coming in to, to take photos and they're not kind of direct. They're, they're not telling us what to take, but what we want to take. And I think that has a big meaning to a lot of photographers because anyone can pick up a camera and take a picture, but not everyone can pick up a camera, take a picture and tell a story on top of that. So I think that being able to do that within this program was one, a challenge for sure, but I think definitely opened up to the way that I do photography now. I, I kind of go off of a story and and demonstrate it through, you know, an image, a solo image or multiple images. And I think that that's very important when it comes down to photographers, you know, because like I said, anyone could just pick up a camera, take a photo and it might look good, but what's the meaning behind it, you know? Robert, what was it you were hoping you'd have a chance to say? I just wanted to say, you know, really thanks to CPAC. It's an amazing resource. I would encourage other people to look into it. It's free, by the way. There's not much free stuff uh, in the world nowadays. And um, it's just a great opportunity for someone who's really looking to take things, you know, to the next level. It's like a good uh, a good jumping off point. And, you know, I've already, I'm already looking at future projects now that I can build on, on this one uh, with. So, um, yeah, no, it's just... Uh, it's a it's a great resource in a world where you know there's so much information out there but not not a whole lot of like clarity on what to do um but yeah for someone that's interested in photography it's a it's a great first step so samantha what was it you were hoping you'd have a chance to say 2023 was a big year for the organization 60 years in in our existence and we've just moved into this beautiful new space and so i'm just so happy to have more people coming into the space and just to know about who we are as an organization because we do have this long history in the city but not everyone knows that we exist and we have free shows open to the public that change every six weeks and and programs like this like our veterans program is so important to us as an organization and and providing opportunity but yeah just wanting to get people into the space that we have because it's a resource on a lot of different levels not just for veterans but from education to members to spaces and labs. So there's a lot to take in in our space. So thank you all. Samantha Johnston is the executive director of CPAC, the Colorado Photographic Arts Center. She's also the curator of its new exhibit, Through Their Lens, Personal Projects by Veterans. Jason Alfaro and Robert Grimmer recently graduated from the workshop. They spoke with CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane. The exhibit runs through February 17th at CPAC's new location in Denver's Golden Triangle Creative District. When we come back, my family joins me in Cripple Creek as we explore the unique winter wonderland of the ice castles. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The political blame games and bickering can be exhausting. But if you tune out, you can miss hearing about the powerful ways our elected representatives can shape our lives. I'm CPR Washington reporter Caitlin Kim. 
My job is to make sure you know about the important things Colorado's members of Congress do, the policies they advocate, the ones they oppose, and what it all means for you. Follow all our government reporting at CPR.org. I'll have to begin this next story with a bit of a confession. I'm not originally from Colorado. I'm a native Southerner, in fact. So sometimes I don't always get the references folks here make about winter sports and winter activities. You know, like snowboarding versus snowshoeing or freestyle skiing versus alpine skiing and so on. We just didn't do that kind of thing when I was growing up in New Orleans and even when I lived in Atlanta. And apparently I am a bit clueless about winter attractions too. When I first heard about the so-called ice castles, my big Prince-loving mind immediately went straight back to the 1980s. Ice Cream Castles by Mars Day in the Time, produced by my favorite musical artist of all time, Prince. Of course, they're not ice cream castles. I'm talking about the Ice Castles, one of Colorado's most unique and, I suspect, most popular seasonal attractions. A winter wonderland with ice slides, caverns, archways, fountains, and crawl tunnels, all created by 20 ice artisans. I just love that moniker, by the way, Ice Artisan. And after a hiatus due to construction at its former location in Dillon, it's back. Now open in the charming Teller County town of Cripple Creek near Colorado Springs. I'd heard about this for years and recently decided to take the two-hour road trip from Denver with my family in tow, my husband and two sons, and learning the backstory of how the Ice Castles came to be made our little excursion extra special. We had fun in a wonderful wintry weather kind of way. And we can thank our guide, Clay Davis, who oversaw the construction of the attraction for showing us the ropes, or should I say, the ice. Clay, thanks so much for allowing me and my family to check this out today. We are super excited to experience this. And From what we've seen so far, it's as beautiful as we imagined it to be. Tell us the backstory. Why had the ice castles been closed? We were in 2021 up in Dillon. Tried to find a site after we wrapped up that season. We were looking for new locations and just had a hard time finding a spot to do the castles. Um, So we were looking around, trying to find everywhere, talking with lots of places to figure out where we could go with our water and uh, electricity usage and all that stuff. So we gotta find the places, it's not the easiest. So Cripple Creek reached out to us actually and they were like, you guys wanna come here? And now we're here and made this beautiful castle. <laughs> well, yeah, I would imagine there aren't a lot of places you can just up and put up an ice castle, but you found Cripple Creek and it looks like the, the town has been pretty welcoming. Oh, definitely. We've been working with Jeff Mosier. Um, he's the event director for the town and they've just been incredibly helpful. Anything we need, working with them has been absolutely fantastic. 
from what I understand, you know, and I'm saying this on a road trip with my own family, that the whole backstory behind this was a dad who wanted to please his children. Can you tell us about that backstory of how the ice castles came to be? Yes. Yeah, so our founder, Brent Christensen, he moved from California to Utah and their family um, was new to Utah in the winter, um, had the winter blues. And so trying to just figure out a way to keep his family entertained, he decided to start running water over his playground set in his backyard. After a while, it kind of kept growing and he started doing different tests to see how to grow it better and bigger. Um, and then at one point, he had a bunch of neighbors and stuff start stopping by and wanting to see what was going on in his backyard because it was pretty big. And then from there, it's just grown into what it is today with us here in Cripple Creek and then the five other locations across the country. The town has said that they are prepared for the influx of guests. Yeah. Um, before all this happened, we met with CDOT, the Teller County Sheriff's Office, um, all of the city here in Cripple Creek, um, trying to just plan the best um, ways possible to deal with the influx of people. Because, yeah, it is definitely more than they're used to seeing around here. Yeah, it's a very quaint little town and I love the little shops and everything. So lots of fun stuff to do if you want to stick around. Definitely there is, yeah. Um, if you're bringing a families down, you know, you can hang out around Cripple Creek and in the day. I'm over between here, Cripple Creek and Victor. Um, there's the new troll they just built. It's a big reclaimed wooden troll, uh, Rita the Rock Planner. So you can go check her out, go walk around Cripple Creek downtown enjoy one of the coffee shops, any of the little stores there. There's an ice cream shop and yeah, plenty of things to do around here. <laughs> Absolutely. So Clay, I've heard about this winter wonderland for years now. Tell us about what to expect. Yeah, definitely a winter wonderland, an ice playground, if you want to call it that. So as you walk through here, there's going to be archways, tight squeeze passages. Um, there's some crawl tunnels, slides. We do have this balcony overlook where you can kind of see the good view of town and a good look on some of the castle. Um, and yeah, and then just lots of ice all around you. From what I understand, 20 artisans created this. How do you find these artisans? Who are they? Um, just a bunch of seasonal workers. So a lot of them just applied online. So they've heard of ice castles and I think it just piques interest. They have no idea what they're signing up for. So yeah, I just reached out to them and um, told them kind of what we do and they were excited and I think more curious and yeah well they came together and build this amazing thing here. What is the preparation like setting this all up and what does it entail? So once we actually start placing ice it's about four to six weeks of building um, before you get to see what we have today um, but we start in about late September kind of getting the site prepped um, and just getting everything set up um, all our materials moved over here and then in, in kind of mid-November we start running water actually um, and then like I said as soon as we start running water we get kind of an ice base formed it's about four to six weeks of actual building ice to end up here. When does this all end? Oh that's a hard question to answer there um, it all depends on mother nature. Mother nature works for us in our favor and it stays cold um, we'll run till early March, about daylight savings time is kind of the latest we'll keep going. Um, but if it warms up, it could end a little sooner. But we're hoping for daylight savings. What I love in reading about this is that although the ice castles have grown and relocated here in Colorado, the mission has remained the same, to create happiness, laughter, and unforgettable winter. <laughs> so we are super excited. Thank you so much, Clay.
Of course, yeah. I hope we can bring smiles to everyone who comes through here. That's what we're here for. Now let's check out some ice castles. Yeah, let's go. Ice castle tips. Stay on the groom pathways. Make magical memories, smile, and be happy. Ice castle tips, okay. We're about to walk in here. Oh, wow. Describe it, what are you seeing? Oh, I see it's like very like blue and like very, very it's very clear. All these like icicles on the top um, sort of look like spikes, you know? What are you thinking, Dad? What are you seeing? <laughs> I see lots of what appear to be ice glaciers <laughs> coming. It looks like they're coming from the sky. <laughs> when you look up, it's like shocking. It does. It looks like they're coming from the sky. They are completely frozen. They are pointing right at me, <laughs> but it, but I'm not intimidated at all. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a cave. It's like a cave. like icicles, like a, a pointy cave, but like with like icicles and they're clear. So we're walking in here, and it's all these little almost like entrances and tunnels, and it's against the backdrop of the sky. So very beautiful. It's sort of like in the movies when there's like multiple caves. What do you say, Dad? I'm waiting for the abominable snowman to come running out. <laughs> That's what it looks like. It looks like a ride at Disney uh, or, or the, the movie Frozen. That's what it looks like. Although it's very sunny today, very beautiful. I'm surprised, at least to some extent, that there's no melting that I can see. But then again, we are in Cripple Creek, so it's pretty cold. <laughs> yeah, I think Frozen is the best example. It definitely makes me think of that the movie Frozen, just everything about it. Yeah. So we're looking for, uh, what was the snowman's name? Olaf. Olaf, we're looking for Olaf. Today. We're looking for Olaf today, yeah. All right, all right, so, oh, which way are we going, this way? Yeah, we'll oh, that right way, okay, keep going forward, guys. Crunch, crunch, crunch of the snow. We are going up this ramp. Oh, look, we're in another tunnel. It's so crazy. I can smooth ice. It's incredibly smooth. It looks just like glass. I can barely move. Okay, so I will warn you that if you're not steady, <laughs> going up this uh, ramp might be a challenge, but we're making it happen. Keep going forward, guys. Oh, wow. So now we're overlooking the town. Better view, better everything. Very nice. Very, very nice. It's like snowy in here, but like over there, like there's like barely any snow, you know. It's like all sunny, but it's like all icy here. It's funny. Yeah, that's true. It's icy over here, and not much snow on the ground in the town. Looks like heaven right now. <laughs> it's the altitude. The altitude keeps it cold. So we're, we're the sign back there said we're at 9,494 feet. <laughs> in the town of Cripple Creek. So that's a much higher than Denver. And in talking with Clay, I believe that the altitude certainly assists in keeping everything frozen and beautiful the way it looks. So Clay, you from Colorado? I am not, I'm originally from Oklahoma. Uh, what brought you here? Uh, the ice castles. Really, okay. Yep, I, yeah, when I found the job, I started working out here and then traveled around with them when they left Colorado and glad to be back now. Well, I'm sure at a cocktail party, people talk about their work and none of them do what you do, right? <laughs> oh yeah, you can't just say I build ice castles without having to show some pictures or um, really describe what it is, because yeah, there's no one really knows what it means when you say ice castles. So I'm still trying to convince my grandma what I actually do for work. She just she doesn't get it, but 
So, so she think you do those uh, ice sculptures for the weddings? Pretty much. She's like, you got all the ice blocks and stuff. I'm like, no, that's, that's a little different from what I do. Well, what's something cool you've learned in this work that we should know about ice? Oh, man. Um, with the ice, it's very interesting when it um, grow with growing ice, humidity really affects ice growth more than I would have ever imagined. When when the humidity is high, the ice grows very poorly. Um, so that's one of the reasons Cripple Creek here worked very well for us. Um, it's with We have low humidity most of the time up here. It's very dry. Um, but yeah, when it's really dry and the humidity is low, we can actually produce ice about 32, 34 degrees, um, which I didn't know was possible. Well, what is the work like? Is it like kind of hardcore labor or is it more peaceful? Like what is working with ice like? You get both. Um, and say it's there's some days when we're just building and the sun's out, um, placing icicles, and you're climbing in the walls, and it's just a fun time. You're just in your own little world, um, in your section of the wall, um, and it's beautiful. And then there's the other nights when we're here till 10, 11 o'clock at night. Um, it's very cold, below 10 degrees. You're soaking wet, um, moving ice blocks or setting up sprayers or something like that, and just... It can be tough, um, but in the end, it's all worth it, I would say. So you have a pretty elaborate sprinkler system. Yes, we do. Um, we have about five miles of water lines running in the castle um, to keep this thing nice and frozen. So it's like little spigots. Yeah, just sprinkler heads, and they are constantly running. Once we turn on water, they don't get shut off until spring. Um, just like you would crack your faucet to keep the pipes from freezing, we have to keep them running so they don't freeze. Wow. Man, this is a beautiful view here. What do, you, what do you all think of this view? It's incredibly impressive. I feel like I am somehow standing on the top of the city. <laughs> it's really beautiful. Um, the king of Colorado. It's, it's what it feels like. We, uh, we've got the sun that looks like it's going to crest on the other side of the mountain here uh, relatively soon, but it's lighting up the entire town right now. It's gorgeous. Guys, what do you think of the view? So astounding, right? The sun. So like some of it's like sunny and like some of it's like shady and like there's like a, a bunch of buildings and cars. It looks like Miami in the evening. Miami? I don't think they have ice castles in Miami. No, the view. The view, okay. <laughs> All right, well that's not an answer I expected. It's at the very bottom of the glaciers. If you get a little closer, it looks like green here and purple here. Am I correct in that, Clay? Yeah, um, those lights there, yeah, kind of have a I like to call it the aurora kind of colors to them. Um, so yeah, as the sun sets, these lights will pop out more and you'll really get to see see the colors. So we're in line for the slide now, right? Yes. Okay, again, it is an incline here, so you have to be mindful. Wear extra socks. Yes, because my feet feel like icicles right now. <laughs> okay, so you can be in an ice castle since your feet are icicles now. No. <laughs> so how are you feeling? Um, I feel really uh, cold. Like, like the air's like nice and like freshy because it's cold around here and not hot around here. So yeah. Mountain air. There is a such thing as mountain air, and it does feel lighter and fresher. And you're at a high altitude. Okay, so we are now approaching the top of the slide pretty exciting. I'm getting a Christmas story vibes here. 
from the Santa display from the movie A Christmas Story. So, uh, but there is no Santa or any characters pushing us down the slide. We're voluntarily going down the slide. Ooh, it goes really fast. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Fun! I want to do it again. Wow, that slide was uh, pretty epic. <laughs> I, I, I didn't think I was going to stop. What did you think of the slide? So fast. And like, I thought all of it was ice, you know? It was fun. Can you elaborate? Yes, hello. Zooming fast. Dad, what did you think of the slide? Uh, it felt like we were on a slide at a playground, literally sliding on ice. And I'm glad, glad there was a pad at the end <laughs> to catch us. So, Clay, how often do you go down this slide? <laughs> uh, at least once a day. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good deal. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's the best part. <laughs> So now we're in the kids' area. It's a lot of activity over here. It's wide open, a lot of space. These little mini tunnels. It's very cool. Okay, you try to come down. Kids' area, what do you see? A tunnel which I just went through. Is there about the slide that I want to know but it's like smaller, but it's so fun. <laughs> it was really clear and there's like colorful in there. I'm Bailey and I live in Colorado Springs. Awesome. How old are you? Eight. Eight. Okay, so I think you have an expert opinion because we are in the kids area and this is all about kids. So what do you think about the ice castles? It's amazing and fun. What do you love most about the ice castles? The slides. The slides. Of course, of course. So how many times have you gone down? One, but I'm going to try the big one. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Wani, Kim, and I live in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. Evan, Bankhead, and I live in Thornton, Colorado. First timers here? Yes. Yeah, first time here, yeah. So what's the consensus here? What do you think? It's super cool. Yeah. Describe it for someone who has not been. It's like frozen. <laughs> That's exactly what we said. <laughs> I mean, it looks like, almost like the Dark Valley. It's really just a cool, ingenious idea. He worked in Antarctica for a little bit, so he was saying, like, it reminds him of being back there. <laughs> Except it's natural in Antarctica. <laughs> you lived in Antarctica? Yeah. For a year. Wow. Yeah. What was that like? It was cold. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like we are right now, but colder, right? <laughs> well, I'm going to call you an expert, because if you live in Antarctica, you know about cold. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, this was an awesome experience. What did everybody think of the ice castle? Fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. Exotic and amazing. <laughs> Exotic and amazing. And uh, a glacial experience. Yes, indeed. Yo, man, let's get out of here. Word to your mother.
son's husband and I enjoying a quick day trip to the Ice Castles attraction in Cripple Creek near Colorado Springs. We loved the winter wonderland, complete with caverns, archways, fountains, and crawl tunnels, all created by 20 ice artisans, especially the ice slides. Family, thank you for being great sports. Special thanks also to our guide for the day, Clay Davis, who oversaw construction of the ice castles from start to finish. If you plan to visit, I highly recommend that you check the website beforehand and buy your tickets in advance and definitely wear your snow boots. The attraction is expected to remain open through at least late February, weather permitting. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Molly Cruz. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.